You're listening to Advice from Your Advocates, a show where we provide elder law advice to professionals who work with the elderly and their families. Welcome back to Advice from Your Advocates. I'm Bob Manner. I'm a certified elder law attorney in Michigan, and I'm very excited today. We have a special guest. It is uh, Amy Leap from Comply Health Services. Amy's a really unique and, and interesting person that has um, a perspective and uh, and a uh, opinions about long-term care. And I appreciate the efforts that she does and the role that she's lived. Um, and she's had some really unique opportunities. So Amy, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, Amy, I understand, and we've had a, a few opportunities to talk previously. I understand that you have been a nursing home administrator, and you've also been a director of nursing at a nursing home. Is that accurate? That's correct. I have years of experience working as a director of nursing, but prior to starting Comply Health Services, I worked as a dual role as a director of nursing and nursing home administrator in a CCRC, but in the skilled nursing portion of that organization. I find that fascinating. I, I, those are two roles that seem so divergent uh, to be the director of nursing and the the, the administrator. Um, was there? Tell me a little bit more about that because it just seems like such an interesting role to be able to do both of those. And I know you couldn't have done that in a huge, you know, skilled care facility that had 150 beds. But uh, tell me about your experience with that because it does seem like those are very divergent roles. Yes, I would agree. There are there are things that were so beneficial to having the dual role. And mm-hmm. then there was also many opportunities um, for having that dual role. So I would say many of the benefits to that were as the director of nursing, I was so involved in the day-to-day operations of the skilled nursing area that when I am doing uh, quality assurance, I am the person running the reports. I'm the person that would have been rounding in the area um, every day in recognizing what opportunities we have to work on. But then also some of the barriers to that is as the nursing home administrator, you are really overseeing all of the departments within the organization. So I feel like An organization that has that dual role also would have to have an operations director or COO really helping and supervising and leading those other departments. Yeah, that's a good point. So then after that experience, you started Comply Health Services. Yes, um, really Working through the pandemic as both the dual role of the director of nursing and the nursing home administrator, it was really eye-opening to see a lot of the opportunities that we have in senior living just really being exploited to a degree I had not experienced before. Yeah, interesting. And directing the skilled nursing area, you can... You can recognize um, what you can do as a servant leader, but then there are also things that you just couldn't help 
um, because of the pandemic. Well, and exactly. And so now, you know, you went down this path, so I'm going down it with you here. So this was, uh, you're, you're being nice because there was a lot of government mandates on this. This was not, you know, it's one thing that we can be sometimes, uh, you know, worried about some of the policies and procedures that uh, happen in, in care settings. But in this case, there was a lot that you were mandated uh, by government policy. And so it was, um, it, I have to guess that this was the most challenging time ever experienced in that industry when we were subject to all these COVID rules. Am I wrong on that? You are absolutely correct. I've been in this industry for over 25 years, and I can only speak personally on my my behalf. This was the most difficult time throughout my entire professional career. They, okay. I was having updates and changes to mandates. It feels like on a daily basis. Right. By the time you were able to update a policy and get your training and the changes implemented, the implements, the things you were implementing had changed again. And you just felt like you were on a roller coaster. You just couldn't get off. One of my uh, favorite people in the, um, that are um, senior advocates is Allison Herschel. Um, and her organization actually houses the ombudsman's uh, program through the state of Michigan. She's taught at U of M Law School, and she's just a really practical, down-to-earth advocate for seniors and, and incredibly smart. And so Allison, one of the things that she would say about that time period, and I don't disagree with her, this is very strong language, but she said it was a humanitarian crisis. Um, locking folks in and not giving them interaction with family, telling them they had to talk to their family through the window. When they had dementia, they didn't understand what was going on. They um, were confined to their rooms. They couldn't even get out to, you know, community lunches or whatever. Um, she called it a humanitarian crisis. And I, I can't disagree with her on that. Yeah, it, it was very difficult. It was difficult for everyone involved. And um, that's one example of what people living in within skilled nursing facilities experienced. And there were, I mean, I could go on and on and on about some of the things that people experienced during that time. It was a very difficult time you could see and feel the hardships and the people that you're caring for. And then you also felt just as the, the caring and the commitment from the staff that worked in skilled nursing facilities. And they took on that burden and that right. hurt for the people that they care for because we we are we're a long-term care facility so these are not people that come in and come out we have relationships with these individuals and you feel their pain because you love them absolutely and you know so so much um uh, love for those that withstood that and because honestly they were the 
the only connection to any kind of um, compassion was the employees and the caregivers uh, that were working there. And they were under tremendous stress too, because, you know, none of us really knew what was going to happen with this pandemic and going to work every day, not, you know, being told that, well, if we, you know, if we contract this, there was just so much that we didn't know about it. And they still showed up at work every day and they still provided that that level of compassion and care that sometimes the families could have supplemented, but they weren't allowed to. And they were the only link to um, just some humanity. And, uh, you know, I can't say enough about the caregivers that that stood through, showed up every day, did what they need to do to care for, for our, our seniors and for our loved ones. Absolutely. They're all heroes. And that's where a lot of my passion comes from is recognizing that your caregivers and your employees within your organization are the backbone and recognizing that as hard as it was for them to come to work and put themselves and their families at risk to be able to care for individuals during the pandemic they were still at the forefront advocating that in a lot of areas that, hey, this may be wrong. You know, is who is listening to us at how we could do this better and still keep people very safe? So, right. you know, it, it, it's, it was difficult um, to go through the pandemic, but I think we've learned a lot from it. Um, one of the things that I appreciate about you when we've been talking is you now have devoted your life to education and advocacy as it relates to all of these issues. And one of the things that you do as part of your training, I believe you have a whole training program to help train folks within this industry. And uh, we'll get into why that's good for management, <laughs> why providing better and best training to the to the staff, to the caregivers, to the, the first line is going to be best for management, best for business, all of those types of things. But let's start talking about, before we get there, what some of that training entails. And one of the things that I think is fantastic is you do a whole training on uh, empathy and teaching empathy, which part of me thinks, is it possible to teach empathy? And you assure me that it is. <laughs> it is. And and I think that's where um, different senior living organizations may struggle with is recognizing from prior to hiring someone that we assume that people come in with certain skills Mm -hmm. or certain attributes that maybe previous generations, I I don't know, I think there's a a difference between previous generations and and people that we have um, in our workforce now. And recognizing what attributes do people come in with, what are great attributes that we can grow upon and strengthen, and what are attributes that we can help people with so that they remain long-term successful employees for us. I'm really passionate about helping caregivers learn how to better 
give care. And sometimes that starts with them learning about themselves. Sometimes uh, it's easy to be critical of um, any profession. You know, every profession, there's going to be some really bad lawyers out there. There's going to be some really good lawyers. There's going to be some really good healthcare providers and some really bad healthcare providers. But one of the things that I've noticed as an employer, as somebody that employs people, is that um, a lot of times the quality of the uh, services that that employee provides is directly related to the tools I've provided them. And so, well, it's easier to think about from uh, somebody in construction, <laughs> uh, but the same thing is true for somebody in a law office. But if I were a construction company and I didn't give uh, a hammer or you know a screwdriver or I didn't give them any tools and 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 expected them to work with their hands, and then I criticize them that they can't get the house built in uh, in a month, uh, you know anybody would see how foolish that is. But I think is uh, the same thing applies in a law office. And the same things applies in a care setting. We need to provide the employees with the tools. And I, my experience is it is directly related to the quality of the services and the quality of the work provided by the employees is what tools I've provided them. Have I given them enough training? Have I given them enough resources, checklists, whatever it is to make sure that they have the um, ability, that they have the tools necessary to do the job properly. Absolutely. And there are programs within our state that help organizations be able to provide these tools. Um, You know, CMS mandates a lot of things, but then depending on payment, <laughs> things, yeah. things change. So based on the level of services that you provide is, is how you get paid and how much is there for education and training. Right. But talk about that. I, I promised that we were going to talk about that earlier. So I am a big believer in that you invest uh, in your employees to get the results that you want. And whether there's money for it or not, the money will work out. In other words, that just because there might not be uh, reimbursement for training, that it's still worth it from a management standpoint to do the training, to provide those tools, because then the everything else will run smoother. There'll be less management issues. There'll be less times where management has to intervene. There'll be less people refusing to pay the bill. (laughs) You know, all of those things that, yes, okay, I get it. There might not be money that is reimbursed for training, but do it anyway, because that's what's going to make the business run smoother. Absolutely. And there there are opportunities for organizations to find money for training and you just said it perfectly. It's all going to come back to benefit that organization. Their star rating is going to improve because their retention is going to improve and their culture. So your marketing and your sales are going to improve because you're going to have longevity in your staff. And you're going to have satisfied customers within your organization that are going to talk really well about how they're treated, the care that they receive, and the good things that are happening within that organization. Right, right. Absolutely. 
A lot of what you're training on is um, improving communication. Um, I have a philosophy that um, most problems, <laughs> and I probably am, I don't, honestly, I don't think I'm overstating this, but I, do, I think that in order to, uh, for this to be true, you have to be really kind of dig deep on it, which most problems could be resolved with communication. Um, and I, you know, now I'm going to go down the political path. I think most political problems could be resolved with communication. <laughs> the reason why things get, you know, log jammed and that is because there, there's a intentional lack of communication, intentional lack of uh, not trying to compromise or come together and, and agree on, okay, what, how can we work through this together to get a good result that's going to be better for everybody. Maybe not exactly the way I wanted it or exactly the way that you wanted it, but ultimately better for everybody. And I think that whether it's politics or, uh, you know, business or caregiving, uh, for caregiving in particular, I think communication is huge. And that's one of your big points of advocacy is if we could just increase the level and quality of communication, we could get better care, better results. Yes, absolutely. And I think that starts at the level of education. I think people that are going to work in the healthcare and the senior living in particularly, you need to have extensive communication training um, that covers everything from listening to understanding your own your self-knowledge of what triggers you and how do you self-manage your feelings and um, to learning how to appropriately respond to someone that you're having conflict with or someone that has just experienced a significant change in condition. How do we provide empathy and be empathetic to individuals when we are working in a stressful environment. And those are things that can be talked and practiced and then performed. Amy, I'm going to put you on the spot here for a second. I, I didn't warn you about this, but I'm going to give you a couple scenarios. Okay. If, if you can, if I can give you these scenarios and, and you can tell us more about what would be a, how would you teach communication? How would you teach um, to, to respond to these scenarios? Um, and I, I just think these will be helpful for our listeners. Sure. So the two scenarios I'm going to give you, um, and I'll just give you both and you can address them in whichever way. Okay. One is um, a resident of a assisted living memory care type place and um, we've been getting reports that um, the in the healthcare they often call it behaviors. That's a word you used a minute ago. Behaviors meaning that they might lash out um, verbally and say mean things or physically. And in this case, it wasn't verbal lashing out; it was physical. And the most recent example was an aide trying to change their sweater, take their sweater off because it had gotten warm out. It had been colder earlier. They said they complained about being hot. So we're, the aide was trying to take off the sweater. They approached from behind, started taking off the sweater, and she lashed out and, and hit the aide, which is awful. We got to make sure our caregivers are, are physically protected. But 
maybe there was some communication issue that we could teach there that could have addressed that differently. Then I'm going to give you another example. And this is one where I have clients all the time. And you can only imagine, uh, I can only imagine, if you've been married for 50 years, and this is your spouse, um, there's bound to have been in that 50 years times where you were grumpy towards each other or stubborn towards each other. And so sometimes the perspective is, yeah, I know they have dementia, but they're just being grumpy. They can do that thing, but they're just being grumpy. And so I had someone that um, their spouse was always the one that took care of the finances. Mm -hmm. And now that spouse that took care of the finances is deep, deep into Alzheimer's. And there was no possible way they could understand the concept of money, let alone balance a checkbook. And the husband is, keeps going to the wife and um, asking permission to do things with regard to the finances. Like, I really want to sell the car. I really want to consolidate our accounts to make them easier to manage. And the spouse's response, of course, is absolutely not. Don't do that. You better not sell my car. You know, and this is the spouse that has deep dementia. So I want you to maybe address both of those issues and how things might be handled a little bit differently. Sure. So I think the situation where the caregiver approached someone from behind um, is one recognizing that no one would feel comfortable with someone approaching them and touching them from behind. You would automatically get defensive and you would you could feel anyone could feel like they were going to be attacked. Now, and isn't it true, just before, I don't mean to interrupt you, but isn't it true that one of the things with Alzheimer's or a lot of dementias is it also affects vision? That absolutely. like sometimes we don't have the peripheral vision. And so even though when it doesn't, maybe they think that they see you because most people have that peripheral vision, but with Alzheimer's or other dementias, sometimes our vision narrows. Sometimes we just don't have very good vision. That's absolutely correct. In, in standard nonverbal communication skills, we would be teaching you always approach from the front and you in just what you pointed out you don't even approach from the side because of possible visual deficits and you get at someone's level if they're sitting you sit you you don't stand over or tower above someone when you're speaking to them um that's that's a dignity issue Someone could feel like you are overpowering them or they may feel unsafe. And I think that's what we need to recognize is people with particularly any type of memory impairment or they're in a environment that is different to them, they're, they could be feeling scared or unsafe. So everything you do should be to reinforce that they are safe with you, that you are there to comfort them, to help them. So if that individual, instead of um, approaching them from behind, would have brought the sweater in front of them, maybe gave them an option of, would you like to wear this or would you like to wear this? Gave them a little bit of control of what was going to be placed on them. Then asked them, you know, can you put your arm in here and tried to assist them in keeping their control and their independence and doing for themselves what they can, that builds that trust in that bond of this person is here to help me versus what 
how the situation occurred. Um, and one of the things I know that it just requires so much patience and, and frankly, probably more patience than I have uh, to deal with this kind of stuff. So what you mentioned was that takes some time. You can't if you're trying to rush through it, that's not going to be ideal. Um, I one of my social workers here, we have a couple of social workers on staff, and they mentioned to me that the um, possibility exists that it could take up to 30 seconds for somebody with Alzheimer's to process what you said. Now, if you've ever sat still for 30 seconds in silence, it seems like an eternity. And so if you say, hey, I'm going to put the sweater on you, I'm going to take the sweater off of you, or do you want me to do those things? Um, it could take a good time of them just sitting there, not saying any more words, waiting for their reply before they've even processed what it is that you're saying. And so sometimes we just assume they can't process it, but in reality, it just might be a slow processing of it. But that takes a whole lot of patience. And uh, I understand why it would be easier just to kind of rush through it. But if there is somebody that we're worried about experiencing behaviors or lashing out, it might require that. But when you teach an individual how to do it properly and they're doing it properly every time, it becomes second nature. Nice. And then the individual then trusts you more as you're approaching them. The next time you approach them with a sweater and they trust you in that feeling, even if they can't tell you what your name is or they don't know their name, right. that's that bond or that feeling of being safe around you, they may extend their arm for you to put the sweater on the next time. Yeah. You can't, just as though you can't anticipate when something is going to go wrong, you can't anticipate that something is going to go right. But when you build that trusting relationship with someone, whether they have memory impairment or not, it's always going to help you. It's a really good point. Um, so for the second scenario is, yes, one, recognizing that I particularly think with that situation, it is that husband, um, I think I took the scenario correctly, um, the person that has impairment is the person that took care of the finances. Right. The person that's having this discussion with them when you're used to doing something, there's a sense of companionship, of mm -hmm. still going over some things, whether they can give you the right answer or not. I, f I feel like people that are partners have a sense of intimacy with sharing things that they've always shared. Right. And, and I think it may be it, me in that particular situation, I would probably have a conversation outside of them being together and recognizing maybe what the needs of the individual bringing the information about the finances to the person that can no longer understand it. You know, I mean, that's such an important point. I think so many, so much of the time we're so focused on the person with dementia and really adapting to them. And the reality is that they're not the only one that needs um, attention and care and understanding. And that, um, you know, especially if they're married, but for children that are taking care of parents too, but especially if they're married, um, the, the spouse, this is a huge adjustment. 
for them and you know getting them the the support and attention that they need is as important as making sure that we're getting the care that we need for the person the spouse with dementia Absolutely. So I I think that scenario is twofold. I think the person that has dementia, maybe there are ways that we can help the person that's speaking to them, give them a sense of they still are part of the family, they're still involved, they're still loved, all while not asking them specific questions that they don't have the ability to give answers to. Yeah. It's one of the things I often uh, face with clients. And, you know, this is so difficult to experience in your own family in, in real life. And it's easy for me as the outsider that can, you know, is just telling you what to do. It's easy for me to tell you what to do when it's your family, it's much harder. But sometimes when I have met the, um, you know, spouse, the parent, whatever, and I've been able to interact with them and I can tell they don't have the executive decision-making ability anymore. That's one of the things that's a term of art that we use with regard to dementia is the the brain function of executive decision-making. That means being able to decide between options, the being able to make wise, good daily living choices. And um, frequently we'll have family members. Sometimes it's a spouse, often it's kids where they'll say, well, okay, yes, I know we need to make these changes, but um, I have to get dad to agree to it. I have to get my spouse to agree to it. And that's fine. I appreciate them in, including their spouse, but depending on the the um, the level of the disease, the, depending on how far along it's come, what folks sometimes have to wrap their head around and um, not be in denial about is that there is sometimes and frequently the inability to make a rational decision. That executive decision functioning is gone. And so that's so hard if it was your dad or your mom or your spouse that you've depended on for 50 years. Um, But it is one of those things that it's important for families to wrap their head around so that we make sure that we're not making decisions like leaving somebody home alone when they might wander away, leaving them home alone when they might leave the oven on or turn the microwave on for two hours or, you know, any of the other things that can happen when you leave somebody alone and they don't have that executive decision-making authority uh, power anymore. Yes. Um, I experienced that quite a bit as the administrator because some people come into senior living organizations and we're doing testing and we recognize that people that are unable to make their needs known or understand um, their their executive functioning has has stopped functioning properly. And some family members or, or some families have not had those difficult conversations about um, power of attorneys and for finances, for healthcare, and then not having those conversations prior to testing being done and recognizing this person has lost that executive functioning and what all the steps are required 
because of those conversations that were not had while people still had um, good executive functioning. Well, Amy Leap, tell me more about Comply Health Services. Now, I understand you have a training program built in there, but tell me more about the work that you do and what you have to offer for the folks that might be listening. Sure. So we do staffing, but it's leadership staffing in long-term care, home for the aged, and adult foster care. Um, licensing organizations. So when I say that, I mean directors of nursing for long-term care, it's MDS coordinators, unit managers, um, and in AFC homes, it's really going in and doing their, their onboarding education and annual required education for licensing. And then I work when surveyors are going into all of these licensed organizations. If they leave with any opportunities for improvements, I go in and and we help organizations get into compliance. But then if the organization has further opportunities that they want to make improvements to Um, Maybe they have a high turnover rate. Um, Maybe their quality of care, they have a high infection rate or high fall rate. I help organizations work through those barriers to identify what they could be doing differently to make those improvements um, so that they are showing by their either their CMS star rating or in their marketing how good of an organization they are. Excellent. And then you have, um, I think we were talking about, you have a multi-hour training program that you put people through. And does it provide continuing ed credits or is it just uh, a training program? It it does not provide continuing education credits, um, but we've recently started a nurse aid training program that the it's a two week program. The first week of the program is either virtual or in person at our school in Cutlerville. And then we have a lab. The second week is two days of lab and two days in a long-term care facility. And then these individuals are able to take their certified exam through the state of Michigan and become their states. Yeah, no, that's great. So it's basically a prep course as, as much as everything else then. Yes, it's a prep course and it's, it's the required curriculum through the state of Michigan. But what we do differently is I add all that extensive communication, conflict resolution training, and we also provide um, American Heart Association BLS with the course. Excellent. And you're right here in Michigan. You're on the west side of the state, I believe. Yes, just south of Grand Rapids. Well, we're we're in Grand Rapids. Um, It's Cutlerville is the area. Yeah, but you can work with any organization within the state of Michigan, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Amy, anything else that you would like to leave with our listeners before we uh, wrap things up for today? No, I just really um, loved that. I had this opportunity to be on this podcast and talk about some of the opportunities that we have in senior living because I feel like talking about them is then bringing it to the forefront so that we can find solutions and all be part of the solutions to some of the opportunities that we have. 
Well, thanks again, Amy Leap from Comply Health Services. Do you have a phone number that if people want to get a hold of you? Absolutely. 616-805-9095 or online. It's complyhealthservices.com. Great. Well, thank you so much, Amy. Uh, appreciate all the listeners here to advice from your advocates. I want to remind everybody that we have our annual training for social workers and case managers, administrators, and we do it every year. It's uh, This year, it's going to be five continuing education credits, and it's a fun day, too, because we provide you with breakfast and lunch and lots of entertainment and really up-to-date information that is both legal-oriented oriented and caregiving oriented. Uh, And it's a real great opportunity to interact with everybody else within the industry, within the long-term care industry, and get some continuing ed credits. So we have that every year. Uh, And if you enjoyed this podcast and found the information interesting, then don't forget to subscribe and you can look back at some of our past episodes because we've had some really great guests. And that's one of my favorite things to do is to interview really interesting people on these uh, very interesting topics. So don't forget to subscribe and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. To learn more, visit mannerlawgroup.com.